chapter 5 of Exodus. We're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through chapter 6, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Um, either that or you can watch on the screen as I read. So Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest their, from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore the cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may uh, labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw was given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, and they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to your people, to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand 
he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of opening your word during this time. Uh, Lord, it is so wonderful that even in the midst of a time when we are quarantined, that we can gather together uh, through a live stream and study your word together and seek to understand how it applies to our lives even now. How does Exodus 5 connect to us, Lord? But you are going to show us. You're going to reveal that to us. So, Lord, give us hearts of, uh, of understanding. Give us eyes to see. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, I know a lot of you may be struggling with discouragement right now. There's all sorts of reasons to be discouraged. Um, some of us are more discouraged than others. Some of us are struggling right now with great discouragement because maybe you've lost your job or maybe you're not feeling well or maybe it's just the, the challenge of being in the home 24-7 and just seeing going out as a real challenge and, and, and kind of a fear. And friends, it's easy to get discouraged. But it's easy to get, to get discouraged, especially when you believe you're doing the things that God wants you to do, and it just doesn't seem to be going well. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is from my world. I've preached some sermons in the past where I'm surprised at how impactful they have been for people. People have told me that, that they had sins that they were repenting of because of those sermons. Hearts were changed and conformed to Christ, or uh, joy and confidence has, has risen up because of a particular sermon. And so if I've been asked to go speak somewhere else, my mind would go back to that sermon and say, hey, you know, this seemed to have a real impact on people. How about I use it as I go and do a visiting sermon at another church? And I'm cursed, of course, I'm sure you understand where this is going. I get up to preach, and I preach the same sermon, and it just drops like a lead balloon. And the people are looking at me as I'm preaching, and they're saying to themselves, who is this guy? What is he talking about? Uh, he's not making any sense at all. And, and I can leave discouraged and actually confused because I, I've studied well, I've prayed up, I've done the work that I need to do as a pastor handling God's Word, but the response was so different. Let me give you another example. This is from the arena of counseling. I might meet with a couple or an individual who are going through some difficult times and, and they're looking for, for help and, and, and guidance and and um, help just to, to move out of their bondage in sin and, and, and get over the habit that they have. And so I walk them through a process. I open the Word of God up and I show them not only what their sin is as it relates to God's Word, but what God requires of them. And many times, if not most times, people respond to that and God uses that and, and God helps them with their sinful struggles and they make progress and it's a wonderful thing. But then I can be counseling someone else with very similar circumstances, and I walk them through the same process. But there is a rejection, and there's a failure um, compared to the success that I had experienced before. Maybe you've experienced this before as you've shared the gospel with people. 
Uh, one person you might share the gospel with, it seems really easy. You talk about the gospel, you, you, you quote scripture, it all comes to mind. And wow, they're really interested and they want to hear more. But you talk to someone else in a very similar setting and you do the same thing. You share the gospel, you quote scripture, and you talk about the things of God. But there is just this, this hardness and there's a rejection. Why is it then that these things happen? Well, friends, it can be very discouraging in ministry that when you are serving the Lord faithfully, that there are times when uh, faithfulness bears fruit and there are other times where faithfulness falls on deaf ears. And friends, this discouragement can take place in, in marriage, it can take place in parenting, it can take place even as you pursue your own Christ-likeness. You're saying, God, I'm doing the right things. Why is X, Y, Z not happening? Now, friends, one time your faithfulness bears fruit, the next time there's no fruit, and there's a rejection of God and His truth. And friends, this is what Exodus 5 is all about. In fact, let me give you the, the proposition that I think is flowing out of this text. This text is all about counsel for those times when faithfulness to God doesn't seem to bring about success, but is only making matters worse. Now notice the contrast that we have between the end of chapter 4 and what we have going on in chapter 5. Moses and Aaron do what God has called them to do, to go back to Egypt and to uh, speak to the leaders and to the people and to show them the signs and they do that. They're faithful to do that. And what happens? The people believe. And the last thing we find in chapter 4 is that they're bowed down in worship. I mean, what an incredible day. Now, Moses doesn't spend a lot of time articulating all the events of that, but that was, in a sense, a revival among the people. They hear about the deliverer. He's coming. He's going to take care of them. And they bow down in worship. Now in chapter 5, they do the same thing. They go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They bring God's word, and what happens? He rejects it. And at the end, we find Moses, in particular, very discouraged. The people are very discouraged. Why is it that when we are faithful to say and do what God has commanded, that things don't get better? In fact, sometimes they get worse. And you're saying to God, I'm trying to do the things your way, God, but it doesn't seem to be working. I thought that following you would make my life better, not worse. And friends, as we move into chapter 5 in particular, there's also a contrast between um, the servants of God and the enemies of God. The servants of God being Moses and Aaron in particular, and the enemy of God being Pharaoh and his taskmasters. And there's a structure to this text, too. And let's just think through that a little bit. At the beginning of this text and at the end of this text, we have Moses and Aaron and their interaction with them. In the heart of this text, we have Pharaoh and the taskmasters carrying out the plan of Pharaoh. And then at chapter 6, verse 1, we have God then speaking into the story. So with all that, let's jump in and let's see, first of all, what I'm calling the faithful obedience of God's servants. 
And we're trying to discover here as we go through this sermon the kind of counsel that we need when we are doing things for God and we're being faithful in doing them, but it just doesn't turn out the way we think or we expect it should. It seems like a failure. Here we have the faithful obedience of God's servants. What we find at the beginning and the end of this text um, are, are these things. At the beginning, Moses and Aaron are speaking to people about God. At the end, we find Moses and Aaron speaking to God about people. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good description of ministry, isn't it? It really is the proclamation of the Word of God and prayer. Isn't that interesting that in Acts 6, that's what God was wanting His his preachers to be doing, to be focusing on the ministry of, of the Word and prayer. But we find now here, first of all, they're faithful in their preaching, in their proclamation. In particular, verses 1 and verse 3 help us to see that. Notice what it says in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. As we saw at the end of chapter 4, God's goal in Moses and Aaron's preaching is ultimately worship. That's God's goal in all that he does. Our worship, your worship. And when God finally delivers the people of Israel from their slavery, it was not so that they could focus attention on themselves, it's so that they could focus on him, to bring him glory. When he drew you to himself and breathed new life into your soul because of what Christ did on the cross, he did it so that you would make much of him, not that you would make much of yourself. Friends, you didn't find God, God found you. Now, from your perspective, it might feel and seem like you were the one that was pursuing him, but you would not have pursued him unless he pursued you first. And without God, you'd still be in your sins, you would still be enslaved, in bondage, and without hope. But God sent a deliverer in the Son, Jesus Christ. Now also notice that when Moses and Aaron preach to Pharaoh, they don't change the message. They don't rephrase God's word. They don't tamper with God's word to make it more palatable for Pharaoh to listen to. No, they speak the very words of God that God had given them to speak. Notice verse 3 as they reiterate what they said, but in a little different fashion. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God, lest he falls upon us with pestilence or with sword. Friends, there's no spin in their words. There's no pulling punches. There's no softening the blow. No, Moses and Aaron were faithfully obedient to proclaim God's word um, fully and completely. They come with a thus says the God of Israel. And they come as heralds speaking the very word of the Lord. And friends, this is what God has called us to do. We are not to adjust the message of the gospel to make it palatable, that it might be more effective in our opinion. We are called to deliver the very words of God to a world that does not know him. And if you've been involved in any of the kind of training that I have done in our church, you have 
heard me talk about this picture of a chef and a waiter. And it's a wonderful uh, image for us just to be reminded that God is, is back in the kitchen and he's preparing the food and he serves that food to us. And he serves that food to us in, in his word. So this is his, his word. This is his food given to us. My job as a pastor, your job as an individual, is to take that word and to give it then to the people who are coming sitting at the table. See, this is God's word and they need God's word. The problem is sometimes we think, because we think that we're wise as we're looking at the plate, oh, they're not going to be able to handle those Brussels sprouts. Now, I understand the Brussels sprouts thing, but I hope you understand that what God has served is what they need. And it's not my job to say, I don't know that they can handle that. Maybe I'll put a little salt, maybe a little bit of pepper. Maybe I'll replace it with ice cream or something like that. No, my job is to take the word of God and get it to those that are the audience, so to speak, that are sitting at the table and to not mess it up. I have no right to, to change it, to adjust it, to, to somehow fit it into my thinking. I need to speak the truth of God's word faithfully. That's not just me as a pastor, but that's all of us who are God's children. We're called to give uh, people God's word. We're certainly called to explain it. We're called to illustrate it. We're called to apply it, but not to change it or soften it or twist it in any way. And the same is true in the Christian life, friends. We need to be careful in our handling of the word of God so that we speak it accurately, fully, and completely. And friends, that's difficult to do when you're standing in front of people that we would view as enemies of the things of God. I'm not talking here about the tone of the waiter in that illustration. I'm talking here about the taste of the food. We can, as waiters, have a wrong tone. We can come with the word of God and somehow be self-righteous in our tone or angry in our tone or even hateful in our tone. But the tone we typically find in scripture is that of love, concern, compassion, and urgency. Now, there certainly are times when God speaks uh, with warning about the things that he's saying. But we are called to persuade men with the word of God revealed, explained, and applied. So our tone can be wrong, but it's the taste that is the issue, friends. Those whom God has been preparing will find his, his word extremely delicious, and they'll want more. But those who are still in their sins and in rebellion against God will find it distasteful. But that's God's issue. That's not our issue. That's God's food. That's not the food of the waiter. Maybe, just maybe, our problem is that we've been so affected by the world around us that we don't want to wait tables in God's restaurant anymore because we don't like the food that he's preparing. It's a question for us to ask ourselves. So the first thing that we find them doing here is we find them faithful in their preaching. Thus says the Lord, this is what God says, and so this is what we are going to present to you. Secondly, at the end of this text, in particular verses 20 through 23, we find them to be faithful in prayer. If preaching is speaking to people about God, then prayer is speaking to God about people. Now here's the problem. 
And this is all part of the context of what's going on. And we need to go back to, to verse 19 to see this. The problem is what we re realize and what they are realizing is that their preaching has not been particularly effective at all. In fact, in the opinion of the foreman, this is what we find them saying. This is in verse 21. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. They're saying, why are you saying these things to Pharaoh? Do you think that you have a message from God to deliver us? But clearly you don't. In fact, all that you're going to, uh, you're going to Pharaoh with the word of God stuff is doing is simply making life harder for us. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You will have to stand before God for what you have done, and He will judge you. I mean, that's quite a word. They seem to know what is right and what God's will is, don't they? They're making the common mistake, friends, that so many times we make, and that is measuring truth in light of our circumstances. And friends, we, we can't do that. We can't measure truth in light of our circumstances. In their minds, their increased suffering is evidence that God is not at work with Moses and Aaron. Either their message is not from God, or there is a problem with them. And friends, this is how people who identify as gods have often treated servants of the Lord through the years. This is how they treated the prophets. This is how they treat pastors through the years. They don't like what the pastor is saying. They don't like what the prophet is saying because it's eventually going to bring some kind of problem on them. I mean, let's think about it in contemporary terms. This is what's happening today. Someone might say, Pastor, if you say abortion is sin, you're bringing judgment on us from society. If you speak from Scripture to show that it, it isn't uh, in support of the latest woke movement, you will not be taken seriously and will be seen as an old white racist. If you teach that God made two genders, male and female, you will be set aside as someone who is hateful and ignorant. If you teach that tr truth is the basis of reality rather than one's feelings, people will call you ignorant. They won't, they won't take you seriously. Pastor, can you just preach in such a way that we don't suffer the ire of society? Now, no one wants to suffer the ire of society. If the ire, however, is because of God's truth, then so be it. But if the ire is because of my tone, my arrogance, or sinful attitude, then shame on me. And that would be true for you as you are ministering the word out there. So this is the problem. But now let's consider the solution that we have here. The problem is that, that the, the foreman and the people are turning against Aaron and turning against Moses because of their circumstances. So notice what Moses and Aaron do and don't do. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done, ev uh, done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Well, first of all, I just want you to notice that they don't even respond to the foreman. They don't try and make some kind of defense. 
They don't manufacture some answer on the spot. But they do turn to God. And they turn to God in confusion, in frustration, asking questions. And Moses even here uh, is, is wishing that God had not chosen him. And you're right to point out in your mind that these are all evidences of a lack of faith on their part. But did you get the main point? The main point is that they did turn to God. And in a messy way, it actually shows the genuineness of their faith. They certainly were not pristine in their faith, but they were purposeful in their faith. They knew where to turn. They knew to whom they could unload their burdens. And that was Yahweh, the I Am, their God. And friends, they have every reason to be confused. You see, the general truth is that when God's people obey Him, He blesses and people believe and worship. That's kind of normal, ordinary, biblical wisdom. Faithfulness ordinarily leads to fruitfulness. So what has happened now? Well, we can say that fruitfulness ordinarily comes after many delays, discouragements, and reversals. And I think probably... That is what you experience more often than not. God is going to deliver His people just like He promised, but chapter 5 is a season of delay, it's a season of discouragement, it's a season of suffering and reversal for God's people, as well as for Moses and Aaron. So friends, notice that in verse 23, Moses is expressing a real and genuine concern. He says, God, I'm doing what you said I needed to do, but it isn't working. And deliverance has not come to your people at all. What's going on? What's happening, God? My friends, when things are not going as we think they should, when we follow God's plan, proclaiming and praying, and there's no success but only suffering and pain and greater misery, we might well be confused. We might well be wondering if the plan is working. We, we might wonder if we have done something wrong. But we must always remember that God has His timing for everything. Friends, faithfulness in ministry of the Word doesn't guarantee the kind of results that we want to see. But faithful, faithfulness in the ministry of the Word does bring about the kind of results that God has in store. Let me say that again. Faithfulness in the ministry of the Word doesn't guarantee the kind of results that we want to see, but it does bring about the kind of results that God has in store. And sometimes it bears fruit in belief. Many times it causes people to think and consider, but at other times it bears fruit in rebellion. And we must welcome God's results as part of His ongoing plan for His glory. And like Moses, we must turn to God in prayer and rest on what God has said. God had promised to deliver His people, but the manner, the timing, and the process of that deliverance may not be what we have in mind. So we need to adjust to what God is doing. So friends, if preaching is proclaiming what God says to the world then prayer is pressing what God says to God. Let me say that again. If preaching is proclaiming what God says to the world, 
then prayer is pressing what God has already said to God himself. So when we turn to God in prayer, we go to him and press him with what he has promised. The Puritans put it this way. We must sue God for his promises. And maybe that's a confusing statement for you, but let's flesh it out a little bit. In the same way, when we come to God in prayer, we say to God, these are your promises. This is what you've said. This is what you've bound yourself to. Now fulfill your word. That's what they mean by that. So friends, this is how we need to pray. With bold, insistent, confident prayers that are laying hold of God's promises. They're not demands as if we're forcing God's hands. They are expectations based on what God has already promised. So we've seen then the faithful obedience of God's servants. Now we transition into what we see in the heart of this text, and that's the wicked rebellion of God's enemies. Pharaoh is a chilling picture of rebellion and tyranny, isn't he? I've chosen one word to describe his attitude and behavior, and it's the word contempt, which according to Webster's Dictionary means the act of despising or the lack of respect or reverence. And there's four areas here where we're going to see his contempt on display. First of all, it's going to be on display in his contempt for the character of God. I don't know if you caught this. Again, look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he responds, Who is the Lord? And with that question, Pharaoh revealed more of his heart than he realized. Throughout the next 10 chapters, God will go through great lengths to make sure that this question is answered. Pharaoh will know who the Lord is. By the time the Israelites leave Egypt, Pharaoh will have unmistakably encountered the God who makes himself known. This is the theme of the book of Exodus. And who is the Lord is the central question of the whole Exodus narrative. God makes himself known, is at the heart of this book. And you could argue that the central question of the book then is this question, who is the Lord? Now, this question is especially important when we consider the fact that Egyptian pharaohs considered themselves to be deity. Pharaoh was ruling the roost as the God in Egypt, and he has no time to entertain the God of the nation of slaves. I mean, seriously, why should I listen to I am who I am when I myself am God? And this morning, it's very likely that there are some who are listening to this sermon who really don't know God. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or identify yourself as a believer. Maybe you're joining the live stream with a friend or a spouse, or you just stumbled across our website, and we certainly are glad that you're with us here this morning. You may be interested in spiritual things. You're open to attending church every now and then. Maybe you've been helped by the body of Christ in some way, shape, or form, and we're glad about that. But if your heart was exposed, you would have to honestly say, I don't know God. Or you might believe in the thought of a God, 
but you have pretty well established in your heart that such a God cannot be understood. He cannot be figured out. Friends, you're, you're smart, you're articulate, you're educated, and you still question what you understand to be the claims of Christianity and its God. This is where Pharaoh is. He is brought face to face with representatives of Yahweh, the name for the God of Israel. But his Egyptian worldview won't let him acknowledge the God of Israel as being the one true God. He cannot fathom uh, that he has anything worthwhile to say to him. Why should I listen to your God, Moses and Aaron, is his thinking, is his mentality. And this is where maybe you are today. Why should I listen to you, Pastor Rod? Some of you are probably saying to yourselves. Who made you smarter? Who gave you the right to say that your God is right? Who gave you the freedom to try to convert me? Friend, understand this. I am simply a waiter bringing food from the chef. If you don't like the chef, that's up to you. But do you even know the chef? He has revealed himself in the pages of his word, and that is what I'm trying to show you is this God who is revealed in his word. The problem is many times that those who say, I don't want your Christianity, I don't want your God, is because they've never actually taken time to understand who that God is as he is revealed in his word. And friends, when a culture of unbelief is present, it will result in contempt for the character of God. It will come in many forms, and I'm sure you've experienced all of these or heard these before. It comes with using the name of God or Christ as a pejorative along with some foul language. It comes in the form of mocking the things of God in the public square. It comes in the form of attacking the very morality of a distorted caricature of the God of the Bible. See, those who are not part of the body of Christ have a distorted view of the God that we worship. And one of the things that happens is that they begin to mock that caricature, which is not an accurate reflection of the God that is actually in the Word of God. And friends, sometimes it comes in more subtle forms, trying to get culture to conform to a new, softer God of Christianity, which has been reshaped by the culture in order to fit its agenda. This would be a non-confrontational God who ignores sin and welcomes everyone no matter what. That's the kind of God that society is okay with. So friends, we begin here by recognizing that there is a contempt for God's character. And this contempt continues on uh, with a contempt now for God's Word. If Pharaoh treats the character of God with contempt, he certainly is going to do the same with his commands. That's why, again, in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. We say two basic responses by Pharaoh to the command or the word of God spoken by Moses and Aaron. First of all, there's just rejection. Pharaoh says, I do not know, or I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. In other words, if I don't know the I am, why should I pay any attention to what he has to say? Why should I even listen to him? Also in verse 3, Moses and Aaron try to further explain this to Pharaoh. 
but certainly it fell upon deaf ears. This is evidence. Um, there is evidence in, in the ancient documents that in, in Egypt they would allow at times slaves time off to go worship their gods. So what's being asked here is not unusual. Um, it's been done. Um, but what does Pharaoh say? He says, I don't know this God of yours. Who is he? And since I don't know him, I don't have to listen to him. So he's rejecting him. Secondly, and this is what often happens, is that not only is there a rejection, but there's also an accusation. He accuses Moses and Aaron of attempting to take the people of Israel away from their responsibilities as slaves. Look at verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And later, this is the basis of how he fleshes out this whole thing with with the bricks and straw. Yeah, the people are idle. That's why Moses and Aaron are coming to me. So he turns this thing around. He not only rejects it with his unbelief, but then he twists it so that those who have given the word are now under attack. You come here and you quote your Bible. This is how people think. But you're a bunch of arrogant hypocrites yourselves. You think you're better than everyone else. You just want morality uh, to control society. You are all self-centered haters. What you're doing is immoral. And, and here we are as Christians trying to say, here's, here's the answer, here's the good news. But a society that doesn't want to hear that takes that good news and they twist it and they turn it around to be something different than even the Christians are saying. It's a defense tactic. And this is what um, this is what Pharaoh does. He has contempt for the character of God. He has contempt for the word of God. But then also we find here contempt for God's servants themselves. This is Moses and Aaron. And if you notice again in verse 4, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Why do you? See, he's putting it now on, on their shoulders. You're the problem. You're the one stirring up trouble. You're the ones who will be responsible for any further suffering and misery your people experience. And friends, this is so often the tactic of rebellion and unbelief. A contempt for the character of God, a contempt for the word of God, a contempt for the servants of God. Now truth be told, too often the church has done more damage by its own arrogance and self-centeredness by its own sinful behavior, so that the world just thinks that we're all hypocritical. I, I think there's plenty of examples of people under the umbrella of Christianity who have, uh, who have established that to be a problem. But also there's this self-righteousness that we experience too, so that the world just thinks that we hate them. Let's just pause a little bit and think about this. I, I think recently one of the things that's been very, very discouraging and disappointing, and quite frankly, uh, has been embarrassing is to hear that there are churches across the country in our state or even right here in our own backyard who are turning their noses up at the government and they're saying we are going to gather and we are going to worship during this time of quarantine and, and for them what they're saying is this is because um, we have a constitutional right to freedom to gather and that kind of stuff and friends, it's, it's, it's horrific that these people would be doing these things. Now, certainly, the government has every right to follow through and to 
bring some discipline to them because they're turning their noses up at the government. But we have no business turning our noses up at the government. The church has always been in support of government unless the government asks the church to do something that is clearly a violation of Scripture. The government has not come and said to us, churches, you cannot meet because we don't agree with your faith. They're saying to every organization, you cannot meet. Everyone needs to stay quarantined at home. And certainly there's some, some exceptions to the rules so that things can be done. But friends, it's simply sinful behavior by the church that is couched in spirituality that turns its nose up at the government and says, we're going to meet anyway. Friends, there's too many cases of multiple infections and the presence of COVID-19 taking place in larger gatherings. And friends, we, we just need to reject that and say, no, that kind of attitude, that kind of response is unhealthy. So we shoot ourselves in the foot, don't we? And the greater church does that. And here's another one. I don't want to belabor this, but I do think sometimes we can, uh, we can be self-righteous. I'm going to give you an extreme example, but I think it, it's there for a point. You know, probably heard about Westboro Baptist Church. It's a church that is known for going around the country and, and, and showing up at funerals or at celebrations or at, uh, at um, uh, parades or conferences, and they come with their, their signs and their, their horrible signs. They have on their website posters, just all sorts of posters on their website. The idea is you can copy and print them and come and pick it with them. But this is what it says right now. God sent the coronavirus in fury. Well, that's an encouragement to people. I'm sure people are going to come to faith with that, right? Um, they have a poster of Kobe Bryant that says, don't worship the dead. They have countless posters against homosexuals. That's where the whole God hates fags thing comes out. This is part of what they're known for. They take on the military. Soldiers die. God laughs. They take on uh, 9-11. They say, thank God for 9-11, or thank God for breast cancer, or, thank, or the Pope is a lying whore. Now, friends, what is difficult is that we recoil at those statements and those posters, especially since they're used as picket signs at gatherings and funerals and things. Yet along with those vile signs, they will also have signs that read, Jesus is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead. Now here's one that caught my eye. Let my people go. Now friends, the world sees these signs being waved at the worst of times, at the, the most insensitive times, and transfers the attitude, behaviors, and thinking of this kind of church onto the church as the whole. They don't have the ability to be able to distinguish between different kinds of churches that are there under this big, broad umbrella of Christianity. You can't expect the unbelieving and unchurched world to be able to distinguish the true church from the self-righteous church unless our message and our method are true reflections of Christ. So this trickles down to every one of us, how we live our lives, how we speak to our friends, uh, how we speak to our co-workers, how we, uh, how we speak to our neighbors and interact with strangers. We must be an example of Christ-likeness, not an excuse for rejecting the gospel. 
Friends, let us not shoot ourselves in the foot by, by being uh, sinful in our behavior or self-righteous in our attitude. So there's a contempt for the character of God. There's a contempt for God's word. There's contempt for God's servants. Now, uh, I want you to notice there's contempt for God's people. And this really is the rest of the story. Mo, uh, Pharaoh comes along and he speaks to the taskmasters and the foremen. And he says, listen, you're going to tell the people that they have to build bricks and they have to build them um, with straw that they can find all over the place. We're just not going to provide for them. So the taskmasters go and they, they tell um, the foreman, this is what you have to do. This is what the people have to do. And so the, the people run around. They they, they go around all the area and try and gather up as much straw as they can to make bricks. And of course, this is all because uh, what Pharaoh actually believes or the accusation that he's making. He says, look, these people of Israel are idle. They just don't want to work. That's why they want to go out and worship. It's just a lie, friends. That's what they're saying. So stop giving them straw to make their bricks. They can go out and gather it themselves. Also increase the output of their workload. So the taskmasters, we're told, are urgent. They're demanding the foreman reach the right production level. And when they don't, they beat the foreman. And of course, the foreman are not happy. And when the foreman actually um, now go to their people, they're frustrated because they're doing everything they can. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And when the foremen go as a union force to Pharaoh to appeal their case, Pharaoh tightens the screws, doesn't he? Now he requires bricks that are made without straw. So just think through Pharaoh's demands here. Bricks with straw to bricks with only straw that the people could forage themselves to bricks without straw. He knows exactly what he's doing, doesn't he? He, he is looking to demoralize and humiliate the Hebrew people. His contempt for them flows out of his contempt for the Lord, his contempt for his word, his contempt for the, the Lord's servants. So it is no wonder that the foreman understood that they were in trouble. That's verse 19. So what are they to do? What are Moses and Aaron to do with this? That the people now have turned on them. <laughs> Chapter 4, they're bowing down to God. Now the people have turned on them. Well, we've already seen that Moses and Aaron turned to God in prayer. We've seen the faithful obedience of God's servants, the, the, the wicked rebellion of God's enemies. But we want to now settle into the sovereign goodness of God's plan. And here we have Israel suffering. And when Moses and Aaron turned to God with their concerns and their questions, we might expect God to chastise them and to discipline and say, don't you remember what I said? But he doesn't. What he says, this opens a door of understanding about God. He says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. In other words, your suffering has been for a purpose so that you will see what I will do so that you will see my glory and beginning in chapter 7 God's glory will be on display over and over and over and over again 
through the plagues, through the Passover, through the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, through the provision of manna from heaven, God will be on display. And not only does Pharaoh get to know who God is, Israel will get to know who God is. But we understand here there's the suffering and then there's this glory. And they go hand in hand. But I would like for us to consider that that the suffering of Israel and God's future glory foreshadow the Son of God, the Deliverer, who left His home in heaven and entered into humanity. He came with His face set toward Jerusalem, we're told, for He knew that in Jerusalem He would suffer. Mark chapter 10 and verse 33 and 34 say this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples now, saying the same thing for the third time. Each time he speaks to his disciples, talking about going to Jerusalem, he elaborates a little bit more. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, he says this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is a description about himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus came knowing that he was going to suffer like this. Then, in Luke's Gospel, we have this wonderful account after the crucifixion, after the burial, in fact, on the same day as the resurrection of Christ, the, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus drew near to two of the disciples who were walking on the road to a village named Emmaus. And I want to read through this, beginning at verse 13 of Luke 24. I want to read through this because I want us to, to capture this connection between suffering and glory and how it's central to the gospel. Notice, as we begin here in verse 13, that that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about 17 miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how chief... Uh, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Just pause there. I mean, this is one week early of an Easter story, isn't it? I mean, this is a wonderful account of what happened here in the Easter story where Jesus rose from the dead. But notice now verse 25. 
And he, that's Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was, not, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And friends, it's just important for us to see that, that Jesus is an example of one in order to get to glory had to go through great time of suffering. Israel had to go through great times of suffering in order to bring glory to the Father. The Son had to do the same thing. So it's no surprise then when it comes to the church that we also will go through times of suffering. And here's the punchline of this text. If we're obeying God and things haven't gotten easier for us but have gotten worse, we're in good company. <laughs> this is what happened to Israel. This is what happened to Christ because he suffered and God was glorified. And we can be confident that our suffering when it comes as a result of faithful obedience will be used to bring about God's glory. Now friends, we must never forget some things. And I could list a whole bunch up, but I just have about six or seven. We must never forget that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We must never forget that what man intended for evil, God intends for good. We must never forget that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We must never forget that the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. We must never forget that God is sovereign, that He is a safe harbor in the midst of storms. We must never forget that God is the I am who I am. Friends, hear this. You don't need to know how God is going to do those things. You don't need to know when God will do those things. You just need to know that He is sovereign and that what he has promised he will do in his way and according to his timetable. Friends, this is what it's meant to build your house on a solid rock. Though the rains may come down and the floods might come up, the house built on the rock stands. Now hear this, you and I don't have control over the rains. You and I don't have any control over the floods but we have the opportunity to plant our feet firmly in Christ, the rock of ages. And through our suffering, He is glorified because we are firmly planting our feet in Him in the midst of that suffering, looking forward to what He has in store for us. This is what the Apostle Peter is getting at in his letter when he says the following, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So friends, as we've seen these three groups, the faithful obedience of God's servants, the wicked rebellion of God's enemies. And now, as we get back to 
um, the sovereign goodness of God's plan, it's helpful for us to bring things to a conclusion. So in times of discouragement, when we are doing things right, but not getting the results that we want, and by that I mean that we expect, what can we do? Well, first of all, I think what we can do is this. Number one, we can find clarity. And we find clarity by doing what we're doing today. By, by opening up the Word of God, by, by seeking to understand what the Word of God says, and, and realizing that faithfulness doesn't guarantee immediate success. And that's helpful for us. Because sometimes, and I think much of the Christian church eh, back in the 80s and 90s kind of started to function with a, a formulaic approach. If I do this and this, boom, it's going to produce this. And then we ask ourselves the question, well, why is this not happening? Because you're putting in a formula rather than resting on a sovereign God who will do things His way and according to His timetable. That doesn't mean stop doing those good things. It just means that your faithfulness doesn't guarantee immediate success. So we don't live by formulas, but by faith. Secondly, not only do we find clarity, but we need to find comfort. We find comfort because now we realize that our responsibility is simply to be faithful. It is to sow the seed, so to speak, right? It is not necessary to reap the harvest. The reaping of the harvest is God's issue. It's His purpose. It's what He does. Our responsibility is to be faithful, to be faithful to do what God has called us to do. And so we find comfort in that because we don't have to produce the results. We simply need to be faithful. So you can be faithful with one person and they totally buy into it. You can be faithful with another person, they totally reject it. And we can say, to God be the glory. Now certainly we want it to be fruitful, but that's all in God's hands. We don't manipulate people. God is the one who is at work in people's hearts. So if we have clarity and we have comfort, the end result, friends, is that we'll find courage. The answer to discouragement is to be encouraged. And when we are encouraged, we have clarity because we see what, what it is that God is teaching us, that He is the one that will accomplish His purposes, that He requires us to be faithful, but He will do the rest. And so then we can boldly step into the world that God has called us to live our lives in and then be faithful to the things that are before us and not so quickly discouraged that the fruit isn't present. And friends, this can happen in preaching, this can happen in counseling, this can happen as you, as you are seeking to share the gospel with, with co-laborers and friends and neighbors. This can happen in the context of your marriage, of your parenting. This can happen in all sorts of different ways. And the point is, be faithful, trust God, leave the results to Him. Now, friends, we're, we're in a situation today which is so unusual. Even as J.D. shared with us earlier, this is really, really strange. But God is calling us to be faithful, not necessarily to look for the results that we want, to be, but to be faithful with the things that He's called us to and leave the results to Him. Now, certainly we go before God and we pray for these results to be in a certain way, but ultimately He is the one who works His plan according to His timetable time and in His way. And we have the example of that 
suffering from Israel, suffering in Christ, and certainly God has even called us to suffer. And friends, you might be discouraged, but this morning, allow God's Word to give you encouragement to realize that not only is Moses an example of someone who did what was right, but it didn't produce the results that he wanted, but that very result was the means by which God was going to be glorified. And God is more glorified even through our suffering than He is glorified in simply doing what we expect Him to do. May that be a help to us today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness to us. We understand, Lord, that we are frail, that we are uh, limited in our understanding of things. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom. We ask for discernment. Lord, we, we ask for those things because in our hearts, those of us who love you, who know you, want to be conformed to you, want to do the things that you're asking of us. We want to be faithful, Lord. And yet, Lord, there are times when in our faithfulness, things don't go in the way that we would expect. And Lord, we, we just thank you for the gift of this passage to remind us that walking with you is not some kind of a formulaic, cookie-cutter uh, kind of experience. That, that we, we flow with the things that you want to have happen in our lives. And Lord, if there is going to be trouble or difficulty down our road, that you are fully and completely in it, and you are seeking to bring glory to yourself, even through our suffering, even through our trial. And Lord, we can have perspective, but Lord, you've called us to live faithfully, no matter what the results are. And so it would help us not to, to have that distorted worldview that measures truth by our circumstances. Help us to see that your truth is true always and every day, and to rest in you and to rest on you and to give you glory and praise. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.